Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts, and society. I'm Sonia Soda, a new associate editor at Prospect magazine, and on Monday I was joined by award-winning journalist and political columnist at The Times, Rachel Sylvester, to discuss the big question on everyone's minds. Is it all over for Boris Johnson? From the first Partygate revelations in December, to the Met Police opening an investigation into potential Covid breaches this week, Boris Johnson's premiership has become mired in scandal. Last week, David Davis stood up in the Commons and told him to, for the love of God, go. The question is, will he? As she explains in her piece in the latest issue of Prospect, Rachel Sylvester certainly thinks so, as she describes Boris as a Heineken Prime Minister in a country that now has a hangover. The following conversation was recorded before it was announced that the Met Police would be launching an investigation into the Downing Street parties. At the time of recording this introduction on Tuesday afternoon, it looks like this is not set to affect the timing of the publication of Sue Gray's investigation into the Downing Street parties. So Rachel, so much has happened, it feels like, in the last 48 hours. It's been a very busy weekend politically. We're recording this on Monday and things could change pretty quickly. But I thought it would be great just to start by recapping what's happened in the last couple of days. Where are we with the Sue Gray report and then some of the other allegations that are floating around Westminster at the moment? Well, it's hard to keep up, actually, isn't it? As if it It wasn't enough that the Prime Minister was subject of this inquiry by Sue Gray into the Downing Street parties, which is putting enough pressure on him as it is. But then subsequently, William Ragg... uh, Conservative chairman of a select committee has come out and accused the whip's office of bullying um, and blackmail. And he's now gone to the police with those allegations. Uh, and then over the weekend, Nusrat Ghani, a former minister, suggested that she'd been told she'd lost her job as a minister because of what she called her Muslimness. Uh, and Downing Street has had to launch yet another inquiry into that. She said she told the Prime Minister what had been said to her and he told her to go and speak to the party about it. But it was obviously, uh, in her view, a government matters. It was involved with her government role. So it's a complete roller coaster, really, for the Prime Minister. Uh, and his position's looking increasingly perilous, I'd say. And have we ever sort of seen a time in British politics where there's been 
this much stuff swirling round an embattled prime minister, or do you think this is, is the first time it's been this bad? Well, you think back to the dark days of the Brexit wars, and Theresa May was in a very difficult position too. But I think what was different at that time, at least for a few months, was that she, the, her opponents couldn't agree on who should replace her. And they both had sort of strong ideological views against the potential... Uh, both sides had strong ideological views against the potential candidates. So the Remainers didn't want to get rid of her because they feared a Brexiteer taking over. The Brexiteers didn't want to get rid of her because they feared a Remainer. So there was a kind of deadlock. Um, whereas now for Boris Johnson, uh, there's a sort of pretty much uniform view that uh, on the Tory benches in the Commons... Uh, so there's a, certainly a strong majority view that um, his authority is gone, his political and moral authority, and he's lost so much support in the country. It's very hard to see how he gets through this. And do you think that that means that a vote of no confidence is imminent? I think a lot of Conservative MPs are waiting until Sue Gray reports uh, but I think once she does come out with her report, unless she says something which absolutely categorically clears the Prime Minister, there will be a confidence vote. Um, it's hard to see how she can avoid saying anything other than that there was a party and that he did go to the party at the very least, um, leaving aside all the other sort of wider cultural questions. Uh, in the end, I don't think she'll say exactly what should happen to him or try and pronounce on his fate. But I think a lot of Conservative MPs are just waiting for that moment as the they, f they feel that there has to be a sort of due process, if you like, but they have pretty much made up their minds that they're going to put in their letters once that report is out. And what do we know about what role Dominic Cummings might play in all this? Well, he, of course, is the worst possible enemy any leader or prime minister can have. Um, I remember the first time I met Dominic Cummings, he was actually working for Ian Duncan Smith at the time, who was the Tory leader at that stage. And I remember him saying to me that Ian Duncan Smith, who was at that time his boss, was a complete muppet, was his phrase, and absolutely hopeless. He seems to think that of everyone he works for, <laughs> exactly. doesn't he? <laughs> he then, um, I remember interviewing him once after he'd left government under David Cameron, and he he said he was a sphinx without a riddle and absolutely laid into him as well. So Boris Johnson is the third Conservative leader he's worked for who he's gone for. Uh, and I think he won't rest until he's got rid of him. And he, the problem for Boris Johnson is he has a lot of WhatsApp messages, text messages. We don't know what photographs he's got, but there he's got hard evidence of some of the things he's saying. Uh, and a motive to use them. He's, he's the sort of best campaigner in British politics. And at the moment, his campaign is against the Prime Minister. You talked about the difference between sort of the end of the May term and the feeling now in Parliament. Um, and I thought it was interesting that you said that Boris Johnson has just sort of lost almost everyone in the parliamentary party. Why do you think that is? Well, I spoke to one MP um, when I was writing the piece for Prospect who said he was like a one-time code you get on your mobile phone when you um, have to make a financial <laughs> transaction and it only lasts for eight minutes or whatever and that Boris Johnson's leadership was for a particular time. It was at a time when the party really wanted to get Brexit done, get that over the line. It needed cheering up um, by a 
by a sort of staunch Eurosceptic. But now that moment had passed, this MP said to me, uh, and he had been up in his constituency, which was a 70% Leaves constituency, you know, uh, in the north of England. Mm. Uh, and he said he'd spent the weekend fielding emails from constituents absolutely furious about the parties in Downing Street. And he said that it was, in fact, the most um, loyal conservatives who were the most previously loyal conservatives who were the most cross because they felt that the prime minister was actually bringing their party into disrepute as well as himself. And somehow there's this sense among a lot of Tory MPs that um, the the foibles of Boris Johnson and the, the sort of refusal or failure to follow the rules somehow taps into this kind of archetypal Tory brand problem uh, about the conservatives of the party of the rich, the conservatives are an elitist, out of touch party. Um, and a different MP said to me that Boris Johnson won because he persuaded the party and his country that he was on the side of working people uh, and that therefore the Tory party was on the side of working people. That was the extraordinary breakthrough he had in 2019 at the general election to build that 80-seat majority. But now these parties have completely blown that apart. It was always a myth, really, but that these the parties have completely um, exploded that myth. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned in your column that um, one of his allies was apparently going around telling people during the sort of lockdown that rules are for the little people. That really kind of encapsulates um, what you're just saying there, doesn't it? Yeah, I remember hearing that at the time and thinking that is... It didn't surprise me because I do think that is what Boris Johnson thinks, but it's also pretty shocking. Uh, and I think the other thing that the problem with the Downing Street parties, which I know at one level it's incredibly trivial, uh, you know, who drank what wine or who had what cheese, but it's about this sort of sense of um, the rules don't apply. And actually the problem is that taps into a wider character flaw of Boris Johnson's. If you think about his handling of the Owen Paterson affair, the way he prorogued Parliament, the way he didn't sack Priti Patel when his own independent advisor found her guilty of bullying. Um, there's been a succession of things, really, where he thinks the rules don't apply to him. Uh, and in a way, that's been his greatest political strength. He's, he's sort of broken all the political rules to win this great majority. But now that's a different thing if it's the sort of the rules of wider society. Uh, and people, I think, aren't willing to accept that. And then because the voters uh, are so disillusioned, then the Tory MPs inevitably, inevitably pick up on that. They want a, a leader who's a winner. Um, they backed Boris Johnson, not particularly because they loved him or respected him. They thought mm. he was a, a winner. Uh, and as soon as it looks like he's not a winner anymore, they'll dump him. So it sounds like he's got quite a shallow relationship with his um, party. You mentioned in your piece that um, you sort of he could be sort of seen as a Heineken prime minister. What did you mean by that? Well, he was always um, described as the sort of Heineken politician, the the politician who could reach out to parts of the country that other conservatives couldn't reach. Uh, I remember Linton Crosby once saying to him, me, when he was um, London mayor that he was a multi-grain politician in a white bread age, that there was something sort of interesting and intriguing and entertaining about Boris Johnson. He was a different kind of politician. 
uh, and he had that kind of reach to, he reached into the uh, former labor seats that make up what we call the red wall, and he managed to reach into the sort of traditional Tory shires, uh, and he created that coalition. But then the problem is that both sides now of that coalition are losing faith with him. Um, so it's a kind of, um, uh, that's why I said it was a bit like the Heineken hangover, or the, the Heineken can falling apart, however you want to describe it. But I think that that sort of winning touch has evaporated. And if in some ways the, the, the sort of um, Heineken ability to reach out to people has been the same thing that's turning people off now. So I spoke to one... Um, Labour strategist who'd been running focus groups among female voters. Uh, and the things that had been charming and entertaining about Boris Johnson, you know, the sort of ruffle, scruffy hair, the unkempt appearance, the slightly shambolic way of speaking, they had been charming previously and sort of rather entertaining. Now they were absolutely infuriating to those same women. Um, and this uh, strategist said it was a little bit like falling out of love. The things that were particularly endearing at the beginning of a relationship were the things that were absolutely maddening at the end. Um, I'm sure we've all been there. <laughs> so so uh, I think it's that, that sort of Heineken ability has just evaporated. And why do you think it's happened? It, it does feel like it's happened really quickly, doesn't it? If people have been saying six months ago, oh, you know, Johnson's ratings would be down in the doldrums, it would have been quite hard to believe, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think it, it, the thing I think that's the reason it's happened so quickly, I think, is because the, the specific incidents around the party do tap into the wider problem for Boris Johnson and the Tory party. So it, it looks like a sort of isolated incident, but actually it's part of a pattern. Um, but I think the, the reason the, the Downing Street parties are so toxic is because it's such a sort of human, uh, understandable phenomenon that cuts through to people. One, I, I spoke to one Tory peer who said it was a little bit like the Millie Dowler um, phone hacking incident um, that led to the closure of the news of the world. It was something that everybody, every family in the country could understand. Everybody had made sacrifices during the lockdown. Everybody hadn't seen friends, hadn't gone to funerals, had missed family, hadn't been having drinks parties in the garden because we'd all been told not to. So it, there was something incredibly human and understandable about the that form of breaking the rules um, which is why it cut through so dramatically. Uh, but I think it tapped into a sort of wider problem uh, and a bigger truth, if you like, about uh, Boris Johnson, which is why it's so toxic. Mm. And the sort of other couple of breaking stories that we've had in the last couple of days, so the allegations about um, the whipping and blackmail of MPs um, by, the, by the Conservative whips, and then um, Nizgani, um coming forward with her account of what happened to her, what, what got said to her about her being a Muslim uh, female minister and that being why she uh, lost her job. How much do you think those two things are going to cut through as well? Um, you know, it's notable if you look at the Labour Party, actually, and the issues that it's had with anti-Semitism. You know, the research was showing that actually in the run up to the 2019 election, that was really starting to affect the Labour Party brand. 
do you think the same will happen around the Conservative Party and Islamophobia? And, and with whipping, do you think people will just look at it and think, oh, that's just how Westminster works? Or do you think people will find it um, quite surprising? I think it's back to that impression of the nasty party, isn't it? That's mm-hmm. the problem which um, Theresa May said that was the Tory party's Achilles heel. Uh, and those things ultimately come from the top. I thought the most damning thing about um, what Nusrat Ghani said was that she had told the Prime Minister personally about what had happened to her and he hadn't taken it seriously, uh, just on a human level, just on a sort of emotional intelligence compassion level if an employee had come to you and said look this this happened to me I was really upset about it you would do something Um, but he didn't and he also didn't take it seriously on a political level either Uh, so I think that is very damning of him and that I think the other factor is that the fact that all these things are coming out and that the the MPs are have shown you know they they no longer if you like respect the rules of um the whipping operation it shows that uh, boris johnson's authority is is i would say has evaporated actually over his party it certainly is evaporating um and i i mentioned in my column i remember going to see a play a few years ago at the almeda theater in north london uh, and the play started with a coin spinning in a bowl uh, and it was a play about um, called Mary Stuart, about Elizabeth I and Mary, Queen of Scots. Um, and which way the coin landed determined which actor played which part was Juliet Stevenson and Leah Williams. Uh, and then when Elizabeth took up her role, when the, when, um, the, the actor uh, took on that part, everyone else on the stage turned towards her. And it was just sort of very symbolic of the way that authority isn't taken by the leader. It's bestowed on a leader by those around mm-hmm. him or her. And I think at the moment you just see the Tory MPs turning their backs on Boris Johnson because they see the voters turning their backs on him. What will be... So obviously when it comes to a vote of no confidence in Boris Johnson, you know, he serves at the pleasure of the Conservative Parliamentary Party at the moment. And if, you know, the critical number of 54 MPs get their letters into the chair of the 1922 committee then a vote of no confidence happens and it's a you know it's a sort of strict kind of up down vote I suppose so MPs hold all the power in this situation conservative MPs so I was just wondering what you kind of know or uh, understand to be running through their heads as they're thinking about when and whether to act or not well, the one thing that it has may be holding them back is that they're not sure who should take over from Boris Johnson. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's definitely a stop trust brigade. There's a is Rishi ready brigade, um, and there's a kind of there's an anxiety about any of his successors. Uh, but I think what's um, dangerous for the Prime Minister is that MPs are beginning to conclude that actually any of the potential candidates would be better than Boris Johnson given his current poll ratings uh, and his kind of lack of moral and political authority Uh, and it isn't like when Theresa May was there and there was a sort of ideological reason for people to really oppose any of the uh, alternative candidates uh it's more a sort of personality issue um so i think that's 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 what's running through their minds 
and they're all calculating do i do i publicly pull the trigger now what's what's in my interest but they're also ultimately um thinking about their own political survival and they're looking at the uh, they're listening to their constituents. They're looking at the email inboxes, which are absolutely full of complaints about the Downing Street parties and Boris Johnson's behaviour. And they're thinking, I'm not going to be an MP anymore if we keep this man as leader. Mm -hmm. And you talked in your piece about Boris Johnson retoxifying the Conservative brand. How much do you think this is going to linger, the sort of scandal of this is going to linger beyond Boris Johnson being in number 10 and affect his successors? I think it depends quite how long this keeps going. Um, but I know, certainly speaking to Tory MPs, they're very worried about the retoxifying effect of all of this because it plays, the Downing Street Party's issue, while trivial, plays into this wider question of whose side are the Tories on. Uh, and the, the kind of killer problem for the Conservative Party has always historically been that they're not seen as being on the side of ordinary people, if you like. Um, they're seen as the party of the rich, um, party of the establishment, um, the party of nice parties in, you know, Westminster Gardens, rather than the party of um, the workers and the, and the, the people up and down the country. Uh, and so the, that's certainly what MPs fear, is that this is rapidly reminding everything uh, as one mp said to me it's reminding us of everything everybody hates about us um and it's that that sense i think is very strongly in their mind as well as they're thinking about what to do about boris johnson and who do you think most is most likely to succeed him it's really hard to say um i think rishi sunak is certainly the favorite i would have thought at the moment um but often, in fact, usually, it isn't the favourite who wins. Liz Truss will certainly be running, um, although there are a lot of MPs who are very keen not to have another, um, you know, blonde bombshell who's slightly um, unclear of what they stand for. Um, but they, it, I, I think also it's worth keeping an eye on uh, Sajid Javid and... Um, Nadim Zahawi, to, who might come through the middle as sort of competence candidates, they both would be less controversial perhaps than either of those two front runners. And Jeremy Hunt uh, is obviously uh, still keen to put his name forward, I think. Um, I spoke to one former cabinet minister who said this uh he had a real sense of buyer's remorse about not backing Jeremy Hunt last time around. So he thought there might be quite a strong constituency in his favour. But of course, the MPs whittle it down to two candidates to go out to the party. Uh, and ultimately, it'd be interesting, you know, who do the MPs... I think if Liz Truss got to those final two, she'd be in a strong position. So there'll be a lot of MPs trying to stop her getting to those final two. And one of the things that Boris Johnson did to sort of get his big majority uh, back in December 2019 was to really use Brexit to appeal to people who'd voted Labour all their lives and were perhaps voting Conservative uh, for the first time in areas of the country that may never have returned a Tory MP before, where that's very rare. 
Do you think any of his potential successors have got a chance of, if not replicating quite that level of success, because that would be very unusual between general elections, but of, of doing the same sort of thing to maintain a Conservative majority at the next general election? It's much harder, isn't it? Because Brexit has happened. So the, the sort of get Brexit done argument is gone. And also Keir Starmer is no Jeremy Corbyn. So he's a much less frightening to many voters opponent. Um, so I think whoever takes over from Boris Johnson is going to have a tougher time. Um, but I think the danger for Keir Starmer is that, is that if it is somebody more competent appearing, appearing um, less flamboyant, less risky than Boris Johnson, uh, then that removes his unique seller point, selling point, if you like, and that um, he needs to have some kind of political definition beyond just Mr. Sensible, Mr. Competent, Mr. Dull. Great. And finally, just before we sort of um, kind of wrap this up, I wanted to ask you about Labour. And what Labour's doing, is it playing it right in this crisis uh, that's befallen the government? Should it be doing more? And how likely is Labour to sort of benefit from this? I think it's quite difficult for Labour because obviously there's a polit political temptation to try and capitalise on the Prime Minister's difficulties. But on the other hand, um, Keir Starmer as leader needs to look dignified and he needs to look as if he's got something positive to say in the end I think the next election will be determined by who has the most um, credible future plan rather than who you know the rows over Downing Street parties or Downing Street wallpaper um, Tony Blair made a really interesting speech uh, last week talking about the importance of having a plan and actually you know there are these huge challenges coming to the country and none of the political parties really have any plan to deal with them uh, and I think for Labour to really um, cut through it needs to go it needs to rise above the sort of day-to-day -day politics and have something substantial to say on the issues that people care about. That's a really good note to end on. Um, thank you very much, Rachel, for joining us. That was a really fascinating um, chat and for sharing your insights with us. And thanks to all our listeners for tuning in to hear our discussion. This episode was produced by Sarah Collins. If you enjoyed this podcast, escape the echo chamber and look out for the next issue of Prospect magazine, which is available on newsstands this Thursday, or go to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to subscribe where you can get three issues for just £5. So that's all for me. Goodbye, stay safe and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect interview, which will be out next week.